Strange times, Steve. Really? Times of distress like we're in right now really highlight the importance of housing security and a sense of community. That's right. When we recorded this interview for today's episode, it was before the coronavirus outbreak. But maybe it's especially relevant now because our guest is focused not just on providing affordable housing, but also education and healthcare. And on building a greater sense of community. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And on the podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about affordability challenges and affordable housing generally. We've also talked about the importance of health and education in fostering greater opportunity for households around the country as well. But it's not easy to work in all three sectors at once or to do so at scale, which is why we're so excited to have as our guest today, Bobby Turner, the founder of Turner Impact Capital one of the nation's leading voices in social impact investing. Turner Impact Capital figured out how to innovate and achieve impact at scale in all three together, affordable housing, education, and healthcare. And they've done so in some unique ways without relying on public subsidy or regulatory programs. So it's a really precedent-setting model. So Bobby, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be here, and thank you for the opportunity. All right. So before we get into the you know the full story of uh, Turner Impact Capital, what you've done and what you've learned in the market, can we start just with an explanation of the business model you've come up with and some of the thinking behind it? Uh, of course. So, so simply put, uh, at Turner Impact Capital, we run a series of value-add real estate funds uh, based on the premise that making money and making positive societal change need not be exclusive. Uh, The fact is, is over the past 25 years, we consistently have proven time and time again that the intersection between profits and purpose can actually drive superior risk-adjusted returns when compared to the more traditional investment strategies. Let's get into that a little bit more. So first, just just some more in the background. So how did you get into this business? I know you've been in the industry for a long time, uh, but what got you uh, into the social impact part of it? I think it goes way, way back. Uh, I I would say that when I was a... uh, uh, sophomore in my summer of high school, my father sent me down to work in Puerto Rico on the assembly lines of one of his shoe factories. And uh, I worked a solid eight-hour day in, on a glue machine, candidly, in what was truly subhuman environment, working between uh, two older men at that time. I think one's name was Juan and the other was Ricardo. And at the end of the summer, I returned back home to Baltimore. My father asked me uh, what I had learned that summer. And, uh, well, it was easy. Uh, I learned how to make shoes, I said. And uh, to which he responded that I had learned nothing that summer and I was going back. So I remember that I went back the next summer, I returned, and to my surprise, there were both Juan and Ricardo working on the same machines on either side of me. And when I asked them what they were still doing there, Juan responded with bewilderment, uh, what other choice do you think we have, Bobby? So I remember returning home that summer and asking my dad, when my dad asked me what I had learned, my reply was quite different. This time I answered, I learned just how lucky I was to have choices in life. And I think that story resonated with me throughout my career. In the uh, 80s, I went to work for a firm called Drexel Burnham Lambert. Uh, I was your typical Wall Street capitalist, uh, but I was also your optimistically naive philanthropist, and I struggled at both. Um, As a capitalist, I I found myself um, in an environment where the sole metric or measurement of success was making money, and candidly over time, making money as the sole metric of my accomplishments was candidly just not enough for me. Um, I think that uh, in my sense or desire to get a sense of balance, 
um, I uh, started focusing uh, some of my energies on philanthropy, where I also struggled. Uh, you see, as a philanthropist, I, I supported a myriad of, of non-for-profits where I quickly realized that most were really only putting Band-Aids on issues. Uh, they were being reactive and not proactive. They, they weren't accountable or sustainable in many instances. Uh, we were really just funding legacies of dependencies. So I would say about 30 years ago in my career, I came to the following conclusion, that if you wanted to treat a problem in society, then the government and philanthropy are just fine. Uh, but neither particularly good at creating scalable solutions that stick. And if you wanted to cure, really cure, you had to harness market forces, great, durable, scalable, and yes, for-profit solutions. Um, and that was sort of the genesis of my career. My first uh, uh, foray into the space was a partnership with Urban Magic Johnson, uh, where we agreed to partner way back in 1998. I remember sitting uh, with Magic uh, at, the, at a Los Angeles Lakers game, sitting in his four seats, and uh, he asked me what I was working on. And, of course, I told him I was working on an urban fund, investing in densely populated, ethnically diverse communities that really were characterized by huge mismatches between supply and demand of socially responsible infrastructure. And, of course, he thought over the din of the crowd that I had said, I want to work on, I'm working on an urban fund. So, of course, he was, he was game to play. Um, we, after a couple uh, couple uh, meetings, really quickly realized that we shared the same uh, passion uh, and frustrations with investments in urban communities. And I remember um, we decided to partner, and the first real disagreement we came up with was Magic asked me how long I thought it would take to raise that first fund. Um, I, I bet him it would take six months based upon the, the fundamental and compelling opportunity. Uh, he bet me it would take two years based upon the, the misperception of the opportunity. And, and the truth is, is, had you bet on both of us, you would have been right, because it took us two years and six months to raise that first fund. Uh, but we were very fortunate with the help of, of many investors. We went on to raise our first fund, and over the next 12 years, we actually raised a series of three funds, uh, about $2 billion worth of institutional capital that enabled us to facilitate not only a strong risk industrial returns for our investors, but also the opportunity to change the landscape of opportunities uh, for so many residents of these communities who suffered from the injustices of, of social determination. So I, I want to go back to that first fund that, that you started. Uh, so what exactly, like, what was the focus of that fund and what were you investing in? Um, the, the, the first focus was, again, was is investing in uh, densely populated, ethnically diverse communities where there was an obvious mismatch in the supply and demand of things like community serving retail, affordable home ownership, uh, and proximate healthcare educational infrastructure. So we recognized very early on um, that these marketplaces were misperceived by the broader communities or the broader investment community. Um, they required unique skill sets to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risk. But if you could do it correctly, uh, if you could bridge the gap between what Magic used to say, the arrogance of capital and the destruction of communities, if you did bridge, a gap, bridge that gap correctly, uh, you could drive better risk-adjusted returns and more traditional investment strategies because at the end of the day, we weren't speculating. The underlying demand for workforce housing or for decent school seats or, or for community-serving retail, uh, there's no correlation or very little correlation to the broader market indices. So what we were able to do over a 15-year period is prove to investors by doing impact investing correctly, you could actually drive diversification and alpha for your portfolio because, again, the underlying demand drivers had a lower correlation to the broader market indices or economic, uh, uh, economic environment. Yeah, that's a, that's a really compelling uh, need and something that often gets talked about today. And, uh, but as far back as, as you were doing this, when, when you talked to Magic, 
Um, it wasn't as common back then, right? You you saw this need before others. I would like to say, you know, Pioneer just makes me old. Um, but to me, it was just clearly obvious uh, that these were marketplaces that offered, listen, let's not kid ourselves. There are some daunting challenges. As a society, why we tend to be celebrating uh, the market commentary of a stock market, which is trading at near all-time highs, a job market at all near-time highs. Reality is, is there's a social commentary that's also at all-time highs, but it paints a very, very different picture. You know, in America today, um, there's 43 million Americans that are living on food stamps. Only one in three students in public schools are proficient at grade level. 78% of full-time workers in this country are living paycheck to paycheck. One in four workforce families, nearly 12 million renters, are severely rent burdened, spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent. And that comes to the expense of the trade-off of food security, health security, and retirement security. Uh, so I think we have to all recognize that there are tens and tens of millions of families who suffer the consequences of social determination. Families that are living in survival mode, living paycheck to paycheck. Families who, for all intents and purposes, have been foreclosed out of the American dream and or from prosperity. And it's just not sustainable. Um, and I think as, as, as investors, we have to recognize that historically, while America has looked to the government to provide a, a basic social safety net that affords lower-income communities with a clear path to prosperity, at this point in time, I think we can all agree that our reliance upon the government to address key issues like education, workforce housing, affordable health care, or income disparity, our, our reliance has actually handicapped our outcomes. And this is where impact investing comes in, because I actually believe and have proven that Daunting challenges can actually lead to generational investment opportunities, opportunities to make great change, both financial and social, by harnessing more market forces to create scalable, sustainable, and yes, profitable solutions to many of our most daunting or pressing challenges. And you know, one of the things that strikes me about uh, about your model and and your investments over time is that sort of comprehensive approach that you're taking. Um, you know, you talked about with the first fund investing in the whole community, not just in housing, but also in the retail, also in in, uh, in education. And so when you when you started that that journey, what what was it like seeking capital for that? Were were you seeing uh, you know investors that you were talking to sort of understanding the approach and and the need you were identifying? Well I, I think that you know when we first uh, started to raise money uh, it was met with great skepticism. Um, I, I think that most investors back then and even today uh, believed or didn't believe that one could do well and do good at the same time. Um, I think that most investors believe uh, that anytime you superimpose a societal metric on a financial investment, you're going to sacrifice uh, yields. Uh, but the fact is, is over the past 25 years, we've continuously proven that investing in social change does not come at a sacrifice in yield. And in fact, if done correctly, it can actually generate better risk-adjusted returns than more traditional strategies because, again, it's not based on speculation. We've never, I've never tried to create demand. I'm just not that smart. But rather, what I've traditionally done is focus on opportunities where the existing underlying demand is large and growing and unmet – 
Think about education, housing, health care. Think about clean water or fresh air. That demand is strong and it's growing. Opportunities that are misperceived or difficult to underwrite, where the traditional investor has either been the government or philanthropy. And I think what was most important that I learned over my years is opportunities where unique knowledge is required to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risk of a particular issue. When we founded Turner Impact Capital about six years ago, we recognized that we needed a, a, a team that represented the communities and the issues themselves. So in, in six years, we've built a team of 254 employees across the country, of which we are 91% diverse, meaning non-white men. Uh, we are 52% women, meaning non-men. And where we lack diversity is in our fanaticism. We are 100% fanatical in harnessing market forces to tackle some of our most pressing issues, recognizing that if we're going to focus on education, we have to have former public educators on our staff. We have former public school superintendents on staff. If we are going to tackle the issues of health care, we have to have health care professionals. We have former primary care physicians. We have people that grew up in public housing. We have former law enforcement agents on staff. So when we sit around the table, we are able to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risk use not just of real estate investment, but also investing in underserved communities who have been neglected for decades upon decades. All right. Uh, thanks, Bobby. And uh, I have a question about, you know, you, you worked for the two and a half years to get funds on, on your first fund to get that built up. And, and then things certainly went faster after that, and uh, you had established the market returns and, and above market returns maybe even, and then you'd established the, uh, the, ability, the ability to do social impact and to do good in the communities. Um, is there a balance uh, as to how those two sides of the you know, investment spectrum come out? Is there more funds coming from social impact these days, or how have things changed over time? Uh, listen, I, I think that impact investing is not new. Uh, let's be serious. Every every investment you've ever made in life is impactful. Um, some of it's good impact, some of it's bad impact. So over the past few years, there's obviously been a growing number of investors seeking impact opportunities. Uh, there's been a tsunami of managers seeking capital. And of course, I actually think there's still a ton of confusion as to how to best define impact investing. So what I like to say is let's start with what it's not. Um, Impact investing is not an asset class. One doesn't have stocks and bonds and private equity, uh, real estate, and social impact. Um, if done correctly, social impact does not come with a sacrificing yield. And it's not something new, as I said before. Companies that are making products that are good for society and or businesses that are employing social responsible practices have been around for a long time. I think what is new, however, is that there is a paradigm shift in consumer values, in shareholder values, and a demand that business be used as not just a force for shareholder good, but also a force for social good as well. Um, the universe of investors really comes into two categories. Number one is, is and I consider myself both, uh, there are the evolved capitalists. And the evolved capitalists are those who have come to realize that doing good and doing well, i.e. profits and purpose, can play nicely in the sandbox and do not, if done correctly, come at a sacrifice in yield. Meaning that if done well, you can consistently drive alpha or non-correlated returns for your portfolio. Uh, these investments, these investors, however, do not typically ask the questions that a, a more more traditional social impact investor 
invest would be, which is, you know, how are my investments, how are my dollars actually having a positive social impact on the communities in which we're investing? Those what we'll call the enlightened philanthropists. So again, on one hand, we've got the evolved capitalists who are university endowments, who are pension funds, who are banks and insurance companies, who candidly are looking to social impact investments as a diversifier for their portfolio, as a generator of alpha. Um, the enlightened philanthropists are, are philanthropists like myself who candidly got tired of using our, 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 our not-for-profit dollars to fund legacies of dependency. Um, so the, the enlightened philanthropist is, yes, they're looking for financial returns to grow their portfolio, but they're also looking to see a measurable societal impact as a result of the capital being deployed in the underserved communities. So in our quarterly reporting, we report on three aspects. Now, first and foremost is financial returns, because if we're not driving positive, strong financial returns for investors, they won't give us more money. And if we don't get more money, we can't make more change. Um, half of my investors stop after section one. They just want to see that we're driving strong returns. The other half of our investors are more socially impactful and they are looking to see and, and measure clear impact on the communities. So section number two is we have an environmental section. We have two lead certified professionals that are on staff and we do hold ourselves accountable for what our carbon footprint is is and what our water consumption is, what kind of investments we can make in energy efficient appliances, in water reclamation programs, and we report to investors the cost and return on that capital committed. And number three, what is our social impact have been? And this is the most difficult for many to really quantify or to qualify because just because we're building school seats um, doesn't mean that they're good school seats. So we hold ourselves accountable for having a positive impact in the communities and we report on both the direct impact will have, like the number of school seats that we've built, how well those school seats are performing vis-a-vis -vis the general uh, public school district, but we'll also try to look at what our non-direct impact could be. Uh, a great example is, is we built an amazing K-7 public charter school for rocket ship academies in the Anacostia area of Washington, D.C., um, Ward 8. Uh, in under one year of us opening the doors of this school, um, violent crimes at the public housing project across the street fell by over 50%. Now, is that because we opened a school or maybe because the local liquor store shut down? But I have to believe, and I don't have clear data to prove it, that when a company that has been neglected for decades wakes up one morning to see that someone had the confidence uh, to build a $35 million K-7 through public charter school for the children of their community, they begin to believe in themselves. And when the community begins to believe in themselves, that's the reinforcing mechanism of impact investing. And that is something that we try to report on as well. Oh, that's that's fantastic. You, know, you mentioned the education side, and I'd like to go into the three different uh, funds that you have, because you're doing all three uh, simultaneously. Uh, so housing, education, and healthcare. So one, how did you zero in on those three uh, as, as the key areas of focus, and how do you put them together? So we recognize that, again, there are tens and tens and tens of millions of families who, for all intent and purposes, have been foreclosed out of the American dream. Um, we recognize that to truly create an upward mobility, a society where the opportunity to achieve the American dream was, was achievable, that it was a three-pronged approach, and these three issues are interdependent. Uh, to be successful, uh, one has to have access to decent education. That's the pillar of upward mobility. But also, 
workforce housing is not only where jobs sleep at night, it's where children sleep at night. So we recognized that to complement the schools that we were building, we had to also address the need to nurture these children when they went home at night. We also recognized how large a role that health um, care or access to health care played in a child's ability to learn and to thrive. Um, so our whole mission is to take a holistic approach in the communities where we're investing, where we're addressing not only health care, housing, but also education at the same time. Um, one of the great examples is our Workforce Housing Fund, uh, recognizing that it's probably one of our today's or one of the largest challenges we have uh, in society, affordable workforce housing. Uh, and I'm not talking about low-income housing for those who are earning below 30% of the average median income, uh, but rather we focus on uh, those essential service providers like policemen and teachers and firemen and healthcare workers who candidly earn between 60% and 100% of the AMI who make too much money to qualify for subsidized housing and not enough money for home ownership or luxury rental. And I think we can all agree that everybody suffers. Communities, uh, household well-being, the environment, and worker productivity all suffer when housing is not proximate to employment, education, and healthcare resources. I mean, at the, the community level, we all know that public safety suffers and is placed at risk when first responders can't afford to live in the communities. Economic vitality suffers as low-income families and younger workers are forced to seek employment opportunities elsewhere in lower-cost communities. Families suffer as they're forced to make trade-offs between rent and food and health care or retirement security. And, of course, congestion costs commuters money, time, and fuel, which, of course, in turn is harmful to the environment. Last year alone, commuters endured 4.8 billion hours of travel delays, paid for 3.9 billion gallons of wasted fuel, and spewed 60 billion additional, 60 billion additional pounds of carbon into the atmosphere. So when we looked at housing, we started with the fundamentals. Today, there's 43 million renter households, which will grow by over 4 million in the next 10 years. One out of two renter households, nearly 22 million, are rent burdened, spending over a third of their income. And one out of four, nearly 11 million renter households are severely rent burdened, spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent. This is just not sustainable. And what we realized early on was the obvious solution is to get private developers to build new affordable workforce housing. But unfortunately, as, as many of the listeners know, the solution's not that simple because given the cost of land and labor, hard costs, um, a for-profit developer cannot build new construction, charge an affordable rent of, say, 30% of the market's average median income, and make a market return. Uh, in most major metropolitan areas today, the parameters yield less than a 2% return. So again, the problem is huge, it's growing, and there's no new supply. And what was most disheartening to us at Turner Impact was the fact that the existing supply is shrinking. Because every time existing, naturally occurring workforce housing is being put on the market, it's being bought by a more predatory or opportunistic investor who's either demolishing the property to build new construction, or they're improving the property um, and increasing rents on the very tenant with no wage inflation. So while we haven't yet figured out a way to build new product and generate market rate returns, we have been able to, way to figure out how to buy existing product, preserve its affordability, and at the same time generate a market rate return for investors. And I think what we all have to agree is that 
if we want to do this, if we want to generate market rate returns, but don't want to do it by increasing rents, then our only option is to candidly reduce expenses. And, and if I learned one thing from working with Maddie for 20 years, is that the biggest expense of workforce housing is not maintenance, uh, it's not utilities costs, it's not real estate taxes, but rather it's turnover. Because let's be serious, nobody works two jobs a day, comes home to a shoddy apartment in a shoddy neighborhood, spends 60% of their income on rent and screams at the top of their lungs, God, I love living here. The fact is, is that there's no pride in mentorship. So our business model is based and has been based on the very simple idea that if we can create a pride in rentership by enriching a property with relevant community services and by maintaining rents at an affordable level, then our tenants will stay longer and treat properties better, which of course in turn will drive down maintenance costs, insurance costs, and economic loss, which enables us to drive profits without increasing rents. And that's sort of the fundamental way how we approach all three of our pillars is how do we understand the issue, how do we quantify identify, identify, and then mitigate the issues by innovative, bespoke um, um, methodologies to to capture the opportunity to drive positive returns. Now, I, I mean, on the housing side, it, like the uh, value there is so clear. Um, and, but on the podcast, we don't talk as much about the health and the education side. So I'd like to understand a little bit better how you realize this and execute it on the health side, and then maybe a little bit on the education side. So on the health side, let, let's start with the, the, the very understanding that we have a significant problem uh, in the American healthcare system. We are number one in the world in what we spend on healthcare. In fact, uh, last year alone, nearly 20% of our uh, GDP, $3.4 trillion, was spent on healthcare. Yet in spite of healthcare, uh, dollars being spent, our outcomes are in the bottom quartile of industrialized nations. Our healthcare model is based on the fact that we have a tremendous opportunity to build out that community-facing infrastructure in the same communities where we're buying and preserving workforce housing, in the same communities where we are building amazing K-12 public charter schools. What we're doing is we're building out the infrastructure for best-in-class proven operators of of, again, outcome or value-based healthcare. These could be things like fairly qualified healthcare centers. They might be Medicare Advantage um, healthcare providers. It could be PACE centers, which are programs for all-inclusive care for the elderly. Our mission is to seek out and find the very best proven providers of outcome-based healthcare and help them expand and scale their platform by building out environmentally and clinically proven or clinically friendly infrastructure. In the last uh, year and a half, we have built 17 uh, healthcare centers for, again, best-in-class providers, and these 17 clinics themselves are serving the needs of over 45,000 elderly and low-income patients across the country, again, in the same communities where we are building schools and buying and preserving housing. So that's sort of our healthcare model. No, that, that's really amazing. So I'd, I'd love to hear about, you know, maybe one or two of the communities where you've been able to put all three together. The answer is, is we haven't yet. Uh, we're closest in the, in the great state of Texas, uh, where we have built over 15 schools and we own over 4,000 apartments. Uh, we're just about to build our first um what I would call PACE Center and Community Serving Healthcare Center in South Dallas. So if we speak a year from now, I'll be able to tell you that I have a great example of where we've been able to do all three. (laughs) I think the intersection where we've been able to do all three is if we go back to our our housing fund for the moment, 
um, you know, we started talking about the affordability and how we can drive um, people's uh, the tenancy uh, in these. Um, so we go back to um, a business model that, again, believes that if we can create a pride in rentership by enriching a property with relevant services, people will stay longer. So in practice, what we do in our housing fund is when we buy a property, um, what we do is we set aside a percentage of our units and we subsidize housing for relevant service providers who in return for reduced rent provide essential services that build a sense of community, services that are essential for upward mobility and hope. So the first thing we do in our housing fund is we, um, we go out and we go to the schools that we've built in the community. Uh, and if we haven't built schools, we'll go to other local schools and we will recruit teachers from the neighborhood schools who, in return for reduced rents, will oversee an educational programming tailored to the community makeup, things like after-school tutoring for children uh, or English as a second language for parents. The second place we go is to the healthcare fund. And with our, our team of healthcare experts, we go out and we work with local healthcare providers, non-for-profit, and we recruit healthcare essential per service providers. It could be um, medical assistants, it could be nurse practitioners, and in return for reduced rent, uh, this group of, of tenants will oversee health fairs, exercise classes, and we most recently had flu shot drives for, for all of our residents. And the third area is we go out and we recruit law enforcement agents to live in our property. Because if I learned one thing over 20 plus years investing in urban communities is the presence of law enforcement within a community drives pride. Now, while our tenants are paying a lot in rent, none could afford to pay for these additional services, leading to the simple fact, unless our tenants have to move, they don't. Um, so while enriching the community is interesting, um, what we have is some great data to support the idea that profits and purpose play nicely in the sandbox. In the last five years, um, our, our housing funds have purchased 28 properties for over 10,000 units, um, 17,000 residents. To date, we have enriched our communities with over 67,000 program participant hours of education, safety, and healthcare programming. And what we've been able to do with that programming is we've been able to drive tenant satisfaction or um, a pride and mentorship from below 30% to today, our portfolio sits at 95% tenant satisfaction. And in turn, this newfound satisfaction or pride and rendership has led to increased profits by a way of a 25% increase in lease terms. People are staying longer. A 30% reduction in incidences at our property. A 16% drop in economic loss, all leading to nearly an 8% growth of NOI and a 10.3% forecasted net return. All of this without increasing rents. This is what we call doing good and doing well or impact investing at its best. That is certainly the case, and it, it's really remarkable to think that uh, I mean the the folks that are living in these properties are are getting safety, they're getting you know opportunity, which really turns into hope for these people, which is really turns into all these things that you talk about. We agree. Yeah. Do you have any um, specific examples of of how it's impacted a, a a community or a person in a community? Well, again, if we go back to you know, examples can be both direct and indirect. If we talk about our portfolio of housing, when you go from below 30% satisfaction to over 95% satisfaction, there's a great piece of data. When we look at our schools, 
Uh, we built an amazing school called the Grand Concourse Academy up in the Bronx, uh, which uh, Andre Agassi and I had the pleasure of having a ribbon-cutting ceremony about four months ago. What was amazing is this is a school with 700 kids, of which 100% of the kids are, are minority. Uh, 78% of the families and the kids qualify for free and or reduced lunch under the Department of Agriculture's uh, free and reduced lunch program, which meaning they are low-income families. Um, and these are kids who, if they didn't attend this school, they would be relegated to a public school district where the average grade proficiency level is below 25% which means only one in four of the students at the, at the rivaling uh, or the local public schools are proficient at grade level. Grand Concourse Academy is approximately 75% grade proficient. So these kids are dramatically outperforming the competitive set in the public school difference. And that means that they're going to have a dramatically wider set of opportunities that present themselves as they grow up. In America last year alone, we dropped 1.2 million kids out of high school. That's a horrible thing because high school dropouts are eight times more likely to go to jail, where we spend four times as much to incarcerate. By reducing the dropout rate, it has such a long-term positive effect on the economy because when you think about it, a high school dropout will earn $200,000 less over the career than a high school graduate and a million dollars less over the career uh, than a college graduate. So we recognize, again, there's this reinforcing mechanism that these investments in infrastructure in these communities have on the long-term viability and sustainability of our society as a whole. We often talk to... Um people on on the podcast about how how difficult a problem the affordable housing problem is and and you know what what is the solution and how can you know how long will this be with us uh, I mean obviously you're producing solutions um, do you do you feel like uh, we could get to a place where this makes meaningful progress and 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 the numbers start to turn in the right direction well I think at this point I'm I'm not solving the problem. I'm, I'm in triage mode. Uh, I am preserving the existing stock that's shrinking. Uh, we have a whole nother set of problems is how are we going to incentivize for-profit capital to build new uh, workforce housing that is affordable to essential service providers? That we don't have the answer to yet uh, because, again, the economics only uh, support uh, a 2% return, and uh, the answer still is uh, we have not concluded what the right solution will be. Well, Bobby, this has really been just an eye-opening discussion. It's been fantastic. And, uh, you know, sitting at a place at, at Freddie Mac here where we truly, I think in our DNA, it's in our mission to create and serve affordable housing from the debt side. And uh, it's really great to talk to somebody who uh, from a little bit different perspective on the equity side, can speak to it just so clearly and really have measured impacts and uh, and illustrate what good can be done. So it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, I, and I will end by saying it has been a pleasure working with the folks at Freddie Mac because while I might be an equity provider, I can't do anything that I do without the support of our debt providers. And Freddie Mac has truly uh, been a partner uh, since day one and enabled us to, uh, again, buy and preserve the affordability uh, of 10,000 units serving the needs of 17,000 consumers or tenants who candidly uh, would have, uh, you know, would, would have suffered the injustices of, of having a more predatory investor buy their, their property. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. 
you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.